Welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care clinicians and brought to you by the Primary Care Society of Gastroenterology. I'm Dr. Charlie Andrews, a GP in Somerset and also a GP with an extended role in gastroenterology at the Royal United Hospital in Bath. I will be your host during this podcast series and I'll be talking to many different specialists in various aspects of gastroenterology to try to bring you up-to-date, reliable advice about when to suspect, how to diagnose, who to refer and how to support your patients with gastrointestinal conditions in the community. In today's episode, I'm going to be discussing iron deficiency anemia with Dr Sophie Nelson. This is obviously a a very important and common presentation in primary care and we're going to be discussing all aspects of investigation, diagnosis and management of those with iron deficiency anemia. And the timing is very apt because the BSG, the British Society for Gastroenterology, have recently published guidance on how we should be doing this. So I'm going to be discussing all aspects of those up-to-date guidance with Dr Sophie Nelson. Sophie, could you introduce yourself first of all? Yeah, so I'm Sophie Nelson. I'm a GP. I'm a salary GP up in Manchester. I'm also a GP with a special interest in gastroenterology and endoscopy. So I work in one of the big Manchester hospitals doing endoscopy. Um, I do a gastro clinic and I also um, have set up an iron deficiency anemia clinic there. So I'm a bit of an iron deficiency anemia geek. Um, I, I do love it. It's quite logical. Um, and the new guidelines, I think, are really good but it, because they clarify a lot of issues that we've run into before, which didn't really have any any good answers. So, um, so yeah, it's a good guideline. Great. Well, I think you're a perfect person to talk to because you'll obviously you'll have seen both sides of this coin, really. Um, and actually, as a disclaimer about myself, so I, I also run a um, a gastroenterology clinic at my local hospital, and I see quite a lot of patients with iron deficiency anemia. So hopefully, we'll be able to sort of talk about our own experiences a little bit and um, give you lots of hints and tips. So just to get started, Sophie, what sort of level of haemoglobin and iron are we looking at with iron deficiency anemia? And can you just talk about some of the commoner causes of iron deficiency anemia? Yeah, absolutely. So the, when, when we talk about a, a low haemoglobin, if you look at the NICE guidelines, they say that that constitutes an, a haemoglobin of less than 130 for a man and less than 120 for a woman. Um, what I would say is that in this day and age, different laboratories have different assays that they use. So although those are, are guidelines, for example, in my local lab, they consider um, an haemoglobin of less than 115 to be anemic for a woman. So I would say to look at, your, look at, look at the normal values on the blood tests that you get back. Um, and if, if, you, if the haemoglobin is less than the normal value uh, for that lab, then that would be considered to be anemia. When it comes to ferritin, um, the BSG guidelines say that less than 30 would be considered to be very low iron levels. Less than 15 would be considered to be no iron stores. Um, so, so yeah, low ferritins. But again, have a look at what, what it says on the report that you get back from the lab because they're very good at, at, at flagging up iron deficiency anemias based on their own assays. And there are some other markers on the full blood count that you can look at as well, aren't there? Because I think they, they talk about the mean cell haemoglobin and things like that and, and the MCV. So can you talk a bit about them as well? Sure. So um, MCH, mean cell haemoglobin, um, is probably the most sensitive marker for iron deficiency. Um, and it measures the average amount of haemoglobin that there is per blood cell. Um, 
I, to be honest, until I read these guidelines, have never looked at the MCH, but it's interesting to know that it's there. Um, MCV is the size, um, so mean cell volume, it's the size of the blood cell that you're looking at. Um, and we would expect that in a pure iron deficiency um, anemia to be, to be small, we would expect the blood cells to be small, but you have to take into account whether they've got mixed deficiencies. So somebody with a B12 or a folate deficiency would have a high MCV, and so if they had an iron deficiency as well, it might look normal and actually not be normal. Um, Another thing that's quite interesting, you probably see in your iron deficiency anemia clinic, these patients who come in where they'll often be referred in with a low MCV, possibly is this an iron deficiency, and actually it can be a haemoglobinopathy. So if you have a very low MCV and actually the iron looks fairly normal, you're often looking at haemoglobinopathy in those situations, um, and, and so that's part of the test that you would do next um, for, for some people. Mm -hmm. I think something I just mentioned there as well is about things like inflammatory conditions and the way that can have an impact on the ferritin. So actually our suspicion for iron deficiency in someone with IBD is going to be a lot higher than that 30, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think they say that you should consider someone with IBD to be iron deficient when their ferritin is less than 100. Um, and, and that seems seems fairly reasonable. And actually the guidelines say that um, over 150 if you have a ferritin of over 150, you're unlikely to be iron deficient, even in the presence of inflammation. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, it's not quite as clear-cut as, as a low ferritin equals, um, e equals iron deficiency. Yeah. Um, I, I have a, a love-hate relationship with serum-free iron. I think a lot of people will look at an iron level, a serum iron level, and say it's low, they must be iron deficient. But actually I think it's, it's, it's a fairly useless test to do because it just tells you what the circulating iron is. And actually you can have a n normal iron stores, but for, for one reason or another, your circulating iron might be low. It doesn't mean that you're iron deficient. You have teed yourself up for this next question, <laughs> which is about iron studies. Okay. Talk to um, us about that. Transfer in saturations. Um, so again, I probably only look at these when I'm in secondary care. I think they aren't very helpful as, as a first glance of a full blood count. Um, but transferrin is the main protein in the blood which binds to iron and transports it around the body. So if you have um, low iron levels, low iron stores, you will often have a low transferrin saturation. So there won't be much iron bound to the transferrin. And that's quite useful when you're looking at someone who might also perhaps have a bit of anemia of chronic disease. Um, you're not sure how much of this is, is low iron, how much of it is, is anemia of chronic disease, and that can be help, helpful as well. So less than 20% would indicate iron deficiency. So Sophie, what, what do we do about people who have a normal haemoglobin level but are, are low in iron? So that's quite a common question actually, um, and it is still important to take notice of it. In the context of a potential GI cancer, it may be that you've caught somebody before their iron levels are low enough to cause an, an anemia. So that's always in the back of our minds, and for that reason, we actually treat it the same as um, an anemic iron deficiency. The, the, it it is, does specifically say in the guidelines that the prevalence of um, underlying GI cancer in particular is very low in people who aren't anemic with their iron deficiency. 
Um, so particularly if someone's pre-menopause and they don't have any GI symptoms, um, you wouldn't necessarily invest, you certainly wouldn't two-week weight them and you wouldn't necessarily do any invasive um, in, invasive investigations or, um, or treatments. But you would do your celiac screen because it's a really common cause. Um, I think if you had somebody, in, in men and postmenopausal women, you actually treat them the same as if they, as if they were anemic as well. Um, the only thing I guess to watch out for is if you have someone, a premenopausal woman, who either has quite a strong family history of gastric cancer or bowel cancer, um, or they have some GI symptoms, um, then you would want to go on and investigate them. Something I found a bit interesting about that exact scenario where you've got a younger person perhaps who's iron deficient um, and they were talking about whether to treat or not and it fell on the side of well it's it's probably worth treating because actually they may feel better in themselves if you do that. Is that is that what you would normally do? It, yeah I think it's a difficult one and it is interesting in, in the guidelines that they say that because there's been a few studies about whether people who aren't anemic but just have a low iron actually feel any different and it's a very difficult study to do because it's very subjective. Um, I think having read the guidelines I probably would, yeah, I probably would treat them because if it makes a difference, brilliant. If it doesn't, you haven't usually lost anything. Um, I think the only thing is the, the side effects of the iron and, and whether they would make people feel worse rather than better. That's very helpful. What is the history for someone with iron deficiency anemia? What would you recommend that we ask the patient? It will often depend on whether the person's male and female and whether they are pre-menopausal or post-menopausal. Um, but in, in general, one of the first things I ask about are red flags for GI cancer because the first thing that pops into most of our minds with an iron deficiency is, is, is this actually an underlying GI malignancy? So I would be asking about red flags. I'd be asking about PR bleeding, um, a, a new onset of dyspepsia, for example, weight loss in particular, um, and, and anything else, so change in bowel habit, anything that might point towards um, either a bowel cancer or a, perhaps an upper GI cancer. Um, if they are a premenopausal woman, it's really useful to ask about periods because a, a, a premenopausal woman who, who bleeds very heavily will, over a period of time, become potentially become quite iron deficient and potentially become quite anemic without really realising it. It happens very, very slowly. Um, tied in with that would be if they aren't taking enough iron in orally. So if particularly in the premenopausal women, if they have a poor diet plus they're bleeding, they can often get quite iron deficient. I think we all recognise that um, elderly people, particularly people who live on their own, will often have this tea and toast diet where they, they don't have much iron, they often don't have much meat, not, not much green, green veg. So it's worth identifying what their intake is. Um, then there are some slightly slightly more unusual perhaps causes of, of iron deficiency anemia but, but it is well documented that people who give blood very regularly you know on the dot of three months every every time can over a period of years become iron deficient um, people who've had gastric surgery in the past it always is worth asking about anti-inflammatory medications because it might not be up on your screen on their medication list but a lot of patients will be buying ibuprofen over the counter for back pain and they might have given themselves cells an ulcer. So I think th those are the main things that I ask about. And do you think it's worth examining patients? Obviously at the moment 
you know, with COVID, there's all this face-to-face -face versus telephone side of things. And, you know, we may be a bit more reluctant to see people in person. But do you think that there is benefit from examining someone? That's a really tricky question because you'll talk to different gastroenterologists and they will give you different answers about that. When I spoke to one of one of the gastroenterologists I worked with last week, he said he thinks it's ab absolutely pointless doing an abdominal examination and a PR examination on, on someone with iron deficiency anemia because they're going to get their scopes um, and, and they, they're going to get a two-week weight referral anyway. So from my point of view, I actually don't think it makes much of a difference. However, I have found it quite difficult to have a conversation with someone about a two-week weight referral, which might mean that they have potentially have a cancer, without a doing it face to face and without being b putting a hand on their tummy. And our two-week weight pro forma makes you tick a box that say that you've done both of those things. So it's down to personal preference. I see them face to face, and because I'm going to have that conversation with them, and because they're there. I do the abdominal examination, but I have to say I actually don't do a PR examination on everybody every time because I know they're going to get their scopes. When we're investigating patients with iron deficiency anemia in the community, what sort of tests do you recommend that we do? So usually by the time you've decided that they've got an iron deficiency anemia, you will already know that they have um, a low haemoglobin and you're likely to have done your ferritin and your B12 and your folate because that's just how we're programmed to try and work out. Um, what's causing the anemia. Beyond that, it, um, it, it is usually very useful to have um, an inflammatory marker of some form, ESR or CRP or both, depending on how your lab works. Um, again, we've talked about how ferritin can go up as, um, in, in the presence of inflammation, so it's useful to know if there is an inflammation there. TTD is really important, so a celiac screen People forget that very easily um, because it, it's not something that springs to mind necessarily straight away. Um, but it's very important. I don't think I realised how prevalent celiac disease was in the community. But certainly if you've got an iron deficiency anemia, it's been between 2 and 5% of those people will have celiac disease. Um, and what's useful about that is if you know that they have a raised celiac um, screen or a raised TTG, you can give them an idea of what's going to happen next. And you can also say to them, well, hopefully this, this makes the chances of cancer very much lower as well. So I think that's really useful. Urine dip, again, gets forgotten, but I think is really important. Now, we used to say that the reason we did the urine dip was because we wanted to rule out renal cell cancer. Now, interestingly, there has been a couple of studies recently which have shown that the anemia that you get from renal cell cancer often isn't due to hematuria, which we always assumed. Um, you'll often get negative dips in people who've got renal cell cancer, and they think that the anemia is often due to just consumption of the tumour um, of iron, um, and, and that's what makes them anemic. So it's an interesting one. We used to do it to exclude renal cell cancer, Actually, what they say now is if you really want to exclude a renal cell cancer, you do an ultrasound scan. I would leave that to secondary care. Um, but I do always do the urine dip because if they do have hematuria, you might also think about urology for those mm -hmm. people. Yeah, I think it's helpful, isn't it, just to sort of 
these are things I, I know that these are often not done prior to referral in, in certain cases and it is quite a lot to remember isn't it yeah. but, but I think just remembering that you need the blood so you need that TTG 5% yes. is a lot isn't it so, it is. so actually it's really helpful to do and the urine dip is a simple thing but yeah. you know understandably easily potentially not done by the GP because it's yeah. another thing that needs to be yeah. be brought in and checked yeah. And now what about and what about fit testing in people mm-hmm. with iron deficiency anemia? We ha- again we had another conversation about this quite recently because fit testing is something that was starting to become much more mainstream before covid came. And then when covid hit and the endoscopy services were hugely affected by that and particularly well I mean all endoscopy services were affected but there was a huge worry about people with cancer sitting and waiting for these scopes and one of the reasons that I think it fit testing became so much more prevalent is that the endoscopy unit started to use it to prioritize patients so they used to say if you have a a very positive strongly positive fit we will try and get you scoped ASAP regardless of this COVID pandemic if you have a negative fit you are very unlikely to have bowel cancer and you can afford to wait. So, and, and now I think we all have access to FIT. Pretty much everybody I know in primary care has access to it. Um, if you're not familiar with FIT, it's faecal immunochemical testing. It, it has taken over from faecal occult blood testing, which we know was an interesting test, but not always that useful. Um, it was very sensitive to any blood. So if you have a stake the night before you would often be positive. If you brush your teeth, you would often be positive. Fecal immunochemical testing is um, it, it, it is still very sensitive, but it is also very specific for human haemoglobin. So it doesn't pick up the state you had the night before. Um, and it's very useful. It's not just positive or negative. So there are cutoffs, and there are different cutoffs for screening when they use it in, in bowel cancer screening, and different cutoffs for when you have someone who's a high risk patient or a low risk patient. When it comes to iron deficiency anemia, the feeling is that it doesn't add anything necessarily as long as your endoscopy services are up and running, because these people need endoscopy. And so I wouldn't necessarily recommend that somebody did it if they were going to refer a straightforward patient on the two-week wait for iron deficiency anemia. It it does come under the low-risk fit category. So if you have a premenopausal woman, you might wish to do a fit on her if she has iron deficiency anemia because you're not necessarily going to refer under the two-week wait rule for her, but you might want to give yourself reassurance that there isn't any bowel pathology, and, and then it would probably be something that was useful to do. And would you do any other investigations, or are there, is that sort of the, the package that you do? In general, that's the package I would do before they go. Um, I think it's useful to consider, we've talked about haemoglobinopathy screening. Now, iron deficiency anemia and haemoglobinopathies can coexist. Um, so it wouldn't stop you referring, but it is very useful for secondary care to know if um, if, if someone of an ethnic minority in particular does have um, have a haemoglobinopathy because it's going to make them not iron deficient, but it's going to make them microcytic um, in terms of their blood profile. Um, Fecal calprotectin is something we talk about quite a lot. It, it isn't part of the iron deficiency anemia pathway really in any way, but if you have a young patient and you, they have an iron deficiency anemia and you wonder whether there's, there's a possibility of inflammatory bowel disease, 
as an underlying cause, um, then that might be an additional test that you could do as well. But it's certainly not mandatory. Okay, perfect. Now, obviously, the focus of what we're talking about today is primary care, but I just wanted to touch on what may happen to our patient when they go to secondary care. So can you just run us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the people who go to secondary care, it's your postmenopausal women and your men with iron deficiency anemia. Um, when they get to primary care, they get bi-directional scopes. So they will... And, and unless there's a reason not to, they will tend to get a gastroscopy and a colonoscopy. If they have weight loss, they will get a CT scan, and usually of their chest and abdomen and pelvis. There is an alternative. You can have a CT colonoscopy, which I think a lot of us will have heard of before. I'm ashamed to say that before I actually ended up in secondary care doing this job, I thought that that was a simple CT scan, and you just put someone through a scanner and they, they focused on the colon. What I didn't realise is it actually still requires you to have bowel preparation. And so when we refer people in, we do need to have a conversation about what sort of investigations they might be facing and whether that's something they want to go through with. And I often will put um, in my referral letter that they're not keen on a colonoscopy but will consider a CT colonoscopy and it helps secondary care colleagues really. Um, but yeah, you do need bowel preparation for that. So if the reason that you don't, they don't want a colonoscopy is that they don't think they can manage the bowel prep at home, then a CT colonoscopy actually isn't an option for them. And you have to think about whether they would be someone who would be an inpatient um, admission. Again, it's useful to let secondary care know these things, but they will make their own risk assessment about these people too. That's really helpful. I, I'd really like to pick up on your point about that counselling before they come in because I think that is so helpful because you the GP know the patient well yeah. often far better perhaps than we do and being able to discuss with them the potential investigations they're going to have and whether that patient wants to go through with all of them and I think it's really important so it's really helpful to have that discussion before you refer them in and let us know in secondary care kind of where we're at with that yeah yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes people will decline a two-week wait referral because they say, actually, I'm 95. Yes, OK, I've got this and I might have an underlying cancer, but I don't want an operation for it. I've had a good life and I'd rather just, I've got no symptoms. They often mm -hmm. don't have symptoms and, and let's just see what happens. And that's perfectly reasonable as well. And, and a, a reason to treat some people just with iron supplements out in the community and keep an eye on what's happening. Mm which moves us very nicely on to uh, iron supplements and treatment. So um, in a patient where a identifiable cause is not found perhaps and we're being advised by secondary care to, to treat them with iron supplements, could you talk about that? So for example, what sort of doses we should give, um, how frequently, frequently we should recheck the full blood count and how long we should treat for? Yeah, so... One of the things they specifically say in the new guideline is that they would like us to start iron replacement therapy as soon as we know that someone has an iron deficiency anemia, unless you think their colonoscopy is going to happen within two weeks. It's not always easy to know that, and I think my approach in the past has been, well, we'll wait until your colonoscopy, and actually I've changed my mind since this guideline came out, and I now start it straight away, because they are sent on the two-week wait pathway. They are usually seen or they have a telephone con consultation within two weeks, but actually the colonoscopy will often have happen a little bit later. 
So I would start the iron treatment as soon as we um, we know they've they've got iron deficiency anemia. Iron the we always used to say that your iron treatment was your standard, usually ferrous sulfate or ferrous fumarate, two or three times a day. Um, and I'm really pleased that this guideline has picked that up and gone with um, something which is a bit, I was going to say a bit more modern, that's not what I mean, but, but I think a lot of us have known for a while that if you give someone ferrous sulfate three times a day, they get often terrible constipation, sometimes terrible diarrhea, they get stomach ache, and they don't, they're often not compliant for that reason. And we have known for a while that actually, if you give people less frequent dosing of iron, they seem to respond really well and sometimes better than they do to the higher dose. It's down to hepcidin. I think I think a podcast discussion about hep, hepcidin is probably going to put people to sleep. But needless to say that there is a hormone called hep, hepcidin or a peptide called hepcidin, which is high in the blood when there is a lot of iron around. And it's a sort of feedback mechanism. It's to try and stop too much absorption of iron into the body because iron can be toxic at high levels. So it sort of regulates the amount of iron um, that sits around and is available to use. Um, hepcidin goes up, for example, in inflammation it goes up. There are other, other things that put hepcidin up. But one of the things is that if you have lots of iron sitting around, um, hepcidin level go, levels go up and it reduces your absorption. And what they say is that if you give someone an iron tablet, for about 24 hours after that iron tablet, your hepcidin levels will be high and you won't really absorb anything else. So if you're giving someone three, t- three times a day dosing, they're probably absorbing that first one of the day and not the other two. So the advice now is that you start off with ferrous sulfate, ferrous fumarate or ferrous gluconate, so one of the basic um, ferrous salts, and you give it them one tablet a day. And if they don't tolerate that, you actually drop down to one every other day. And that even that has quite a decent response. We, I always used to tell people to take it with orange juice. That's been completely disproven now. <laughs> So there's no need to take it with orange juice. Uh, it, it is beneficial to have it on an empty stomach um, and it's beneficial to avoid tea and coffee for about 60 minutes afterwards. But I do tend to say to my patients that actually just please take it. Don't wait, you know, don't, don't, don't not take it because you're waiting for that perfect opportunity when your stomach's empty and you haven't had any tea or coffee. Actually just take it. And great, if you can do these other things, that will help. Um, the... In terms of how long you do it for, they would, I say they, the BSG have suggested that we do it for three months after your haemoglobin level, level either normalises or increases from what it was by um, two grams per, per litre. So if you started someone with a haemoglobin of eight or 80 in new money, um, once they hit that 10 or 100, then from then onwards, it's three months more um, of iron replacement, and that should be enough. Something I thought was quite enlightened of the BSG was um, was when they noted that we should be checking it two weeks after starting iron supplements. However, they did accept that actually that was probably quite hard to do in primary care, yeah. and they said actually very reasonable to do it at four weeks. I thought yeah. that, that was very, uh, very good. I did actually. It, sh- it showed. I mean, the BSG is is not a primary care. 
um, sort of organisation primarily. It's it's for secondary care. But yeah, there was a lot of understanding about the practicalities of how this works. So yeah, they say at four weeks, check the haemoglobin and, and see what it's doing. Um, and, and if it's normalised or if it's much better than it was, then from then onwards, three months more of iron treatment. And how often should we be rechecking the bloods as we go through? So in terms of monitoring, they recommended that we um, we reassess the response um, after so we do the, the 28 days the four weeks um, and then we monitor the full blood count three monthly after that until we get to a year and then after that six monthly and it says to two or three years and the other thing it said was that there's no need to actually check the ferritin which is interesting mm. what we're looking at is whether we can stop them being anemic and bring that back into the mm. normal range or as close to as possible but no need to recheck the ferritins. And I guess that the reason that we are keeping on doing it for a while afterwards is to see are they becoming recurrently deficient um, and in that sort of situation what would you recommend if they if you do treat them and it, it returns to normal and then it starts to tail off again? Yeah so there, there's a couple of reasons really so you're looking for a, a resistant iron deficiency anemia or a recurrent one so a resistant one is one that doesn't really improve with the iron and if it doesn't improve, we need to have a think about why it's not improving. Firstly, is there still something going on that we haven't picked up on, on the inside? Um, and second, so, you know, are they still losing blood from somewhere? Have we missed something? Um, and the other thing is that there is this distinction between absolute and functional iron deficiency. So absolute iron deficiency is your classic person who is either not taking enough iron in or they're losing iron from somewhere they don't have enough iron in their body for one of those reasons and if you give them iron supplements they respond very quickly and that's often the end of it um, if you have someone with functional iron deficiency there's there is actually sometimes enough iron in the body but the body can't use it properly to make red blood cells and you'll often see that in people with multiple health problems so ischemic heart disease chronic kidney disease there's, there's sometimes an element of iron deficiency but also the body doesn't seem to be able to use that iron properly and people with functional iron deficiency often don't respond very well to iron supplements because the body can't use it so they will be the people that are often persistently iron deficient those people may or may not come back into primary care so that might be picked up still while, while they're under secondary care and in that case we would tend to hold on to them in secondary care and look at further investigation and that usually means a, um, a small bowel imaging of some form and gold standard would be the capsule endoscopy. It's a, it's a pill cam, you swallow it, it goes through and it takes pictures throughout the small bowel and it's very useful. It's a secondary care only investigation, it's not something we would ever be expected um, to, to do in primary care, but it's useful to know because actually more likely is that we would get someone back to primary care having had their investigations and having responded well to iron the first time round and then they might become anemic again and they might need further investigation and I would recommend that those people are sent back to secondary care doesn't have to be a two-week wait referral that one it can be sent back routinely or if you have advice and guidance in your area that's the other thing um, you can send a advice and guidance request back in saying this person has, has dropped their haemoglobin or their ferritin levels again um, will you take them back and they usually will brilliant great and whilst we're on the treatment side of things um, parenteral iron so iron infusions yeah who's suitable for that 
So in terms of the next step up from the, the classic iron salts, there is mention of a thing called ferric maltol, um, which is a still an oral iron supplement, but it's slightly different. Um, it seems to be tolerated better um, and it, it, it absorbs slower. So the response to it is, is takes a longer time. So you might find that you're, you're checking the iron again or the haemoglobin again after six to eight weeks rather than as early as four weeks. Um, but it has fewer side effects. It's just a slightly different chemical makeup, to be honest. Um, the problem with this is, it sounds like a great idea, but in my area, certainly, primary care physicians can't um, prescribe it. And that's generally because it's a bit more expensive than your, your standard iron salts. So there is an option for that, and I have referred people into primary care who don't particularly want an iron infusion, and said, "Will you, you know, would you consider ferric maltol for them?" Um, and it is quite good; it's definitely better tolerated. Um, the next step up from that would be the the IV iron, and people who either can't tolerate the supplements because of side effects. Um, or their body doesn't seem to be able to absorb them properly are often the prime candidates for this. So the ones springing to mind are, are obviously the people who, who get terrible side effects with your iron, the oral iron, um, but also often um, inflammatory bowel disease patients, and you'll know more, more about this than I will, but um, they, they often can't absorb the oral iron or it really does set off their IBD symptoms. And in those situations, um, the injections or the infusions are often a really good option. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Sophie. I just thought maybe we could finish with any top tips that you've got, things that you'd really like GPs to come away from this episode knowing. Um, I think one of the biggest things would probably be for me the celiac screen right at the beginning because it really does change the patient journey, the patient pathway from that iron deficiency anemia diagnosis onwards. So that's one of the biggest things that I think of now when I, I see somebody with iron deficiency anemia. Um, so that's a big one. And again, I think the conversation with the patient about what might happen and whether that's actually something that they want to do. So I'm going to refer you on this two-week weight cancer pathway in case this is cancer. You are likely to get an upper and a lower GI endoscopy and that's likely to involve bowel preparation do you think that's something that you want to do um, and and see what see what they think because sometimes they say no and it can surprise you yeah brilliant thank you so much and thank you also for raising the celiac side of things so uh, to go along with this um, podcast episode we're also releasing one on celiac disease so on the diagnosis of celiac disease so please have a listen to that one as well um, just to add to your learning around iron deficiency anemia a very important cause of iron deficiency anemia um, but Sophie, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I've certainly learned a lot and enjoyed discussing this with you, so thank you very Lovely. much. Lovely, no, I've really enjoyed it, thank you.